It is a great blessing to realize that we serve a God who, whose strength and wisdom and knowledge are without bounds, who truly works His will in the armies of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. There's none that can stay His hand or question, what doest thou? One whose counsels stand and one who cannot be surprised, cannot be overcome. A God who we can rest assured nothing occurs outside of His active and causative or permissive will. A God who permits evil, but does so with purpose. Nothing happens outside of God's sovereign will and purpose. And yet God has been pleased to interact with his creation in marvelous ways, providing a matrix of responsibility and obligation, providing knowledge with which comes responsibility, providing enabling grace with which comes great responsibility. In the Colossian letter, the Apostle Paul writes to a church that is established in that present truth, established in the grace of God and an affection for, a love for this sovereign God. And it's hard to know where to begin in this first chapter, so we'll just jump in with verse 8 where he writes that Epaphras also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, and to all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Paul says, I'm praying for you, the church in Colossae, and by extension, the prayers of God's people for the churches around this world today. The prayer is what? That we might be filled with the knowledge of his will. God is sovereign and God works his will. But what a blessing it is. He's given us an understanding that we might know his will, that we might know what great things God works. That's the message the gospel presents is God is on his throne. He's working and this is his will. And what is the will? That we might be filled with the knowledge of his will with all wisdom and spiritual understanding, and that that knowledge might effect a change in our lives. That she might walk worthy, that she might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. Jesus Christ himself taught a lot about fruitfulness. Remember the parable he gave of the sower and the question of that parable is not are you, are you, uh, barren or unfruitful ground? The question is are you bringing forth fruit? And if so, is it 30? Is it 60? Is it a hundredfold? 
Are you fruit bearing? That you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, that you might have the knowledge of God and that you might be strengthened with God's power. God's the source. God's the one who gives power according to his glorious power and to all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. It's amazing how many in this world are pursuing happiness or pursuing joyfulness and never finding it, never finding anything except dissatisfaction. And the reason is simply this. The only source of joy is Jesus Christ. The only source of real joy is serving the Almighty and Sovereign God. But so many people are so self Focused, so self-interested that they seek joy in the things of this world for their own sake. And in doing so, they find nothing but misery. The, the tighter we try to grasp something that we think will give us pleasure, the more it slips away and we lose any joy. Paul's prayer is not that we might be miserable in the service of God, but rather that we might be filled with the knowledge of God so that we might know what it is to find joy with all joyfulness. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Notice how at the center of everything is God. Giving thanks to the Father. Why? Because He has made us fit. He's made us meet. He's made us suitable to be partakers of this inheritance. The inheritance of the saints in light or in understanding. He's given us knowledge. Again and again, He's given us the ability to comprehend. Peter would say, walk soberly, think soberly, having a mind that is a right mind that understands what's going on. It's like having light turned on in a dark place. That which was so confusing about us, all of a sudden is crystal clear. Why? Because we recognize God's work, God's purpose, and God's power. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. Darkness has power. You don't believe it? Have you ever been shut up in a place that was completely dark? With no candle, with no flashlight, with nothing to give a source of light? You're bound by it. You can't do anything. You don't know where to go, which way to turn. No way out. Like the country song says, blind and afraid of the dark. What a terrible place to be. He's translated us from the power of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. It's terrible to be blind and in the darkness of this world. What a wonderful thing it is to have light. But with light comes knowledge. With light comes understanding. What a blessing it is with that light to know that there is forgiveness of sins. Why is that so important? Because sins also bind us, imprison us, prevent us from having any hope or any progress. But Jesus Christ has given us redemption through his blood. Redemption that's applied, that's real, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, he 
he he steps aside for a moment to point out the glorious nature of Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He is the creator God. He is glorious. He is infinite. He is powerful. Everything is created by him. Everything is created for him. Understanding and having the knowledge of God begins with that realization. Everything that is exists not for us, but for him. Why did God create the world? He created it for his glory, for his purpose. Why did God create man? He created man for his glory, for his purpose. Why did God choose to save men for his glory? Why did they even need to be saved? For his glory. It's all about him. And that's what Paul brings home to the church of Jesus Christ in this writing. He made everything for him. And he is before all things. Before in time, before in priority. He is more important than anything else. And we need that beaten down into our brains. We need that beaten into our heads. God is first. Christ is the priority always, no matter what the question is. It's His will that matters. And it's Jesus Christ's glory that comes first. Everything else is secondary. And if we understand that, then we can begin to walk in the way that he's commanded. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. That phrase deserves a lot of consideration, because what it means is not they exist, but they continue to be. Jesus Christ literally holds the world together. Everything is held together because Jesus Christ rules. It's Christ that binds and holds and everything consists by Him. So if we understand that He is the head of the physical creation, He made everything for His own purpose, for His own glory, and He holds it all together for His glory. It's because of his power that the planets continue to move, that the earth continues to rotate, that the sun rises in the morning and sets in the evening, that there's oxygen for us to breathe. The physical nature of existence is by him, and it's for him. Then why would it not be reasonable to understand this next part? And he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. That in all things he might have the preeminence. All things. In creation, he has the preeminence. He made it for his glory. He holds it together for his glory. But in your heart, in your mind, 
He should have the preeminence. Why? Because you were made for that purpose, for His glory. And if you begin to have the mind of Christ, if the Spirit of God has worked in you, if it's given you an understanding, then you know that He is. And that He's a rewarder of them who diligently seek Him. And you desire to praise Jesus Christ with your body, with your soul, with the life that He's given you. That in all things He might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. Why? Why is Christ preeminent? Why is Jesus Christ so important? Because it pleased the Father. Again, all things after the counsel of His own will. It's for His pleasure that all things are and were created. And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, natural things and spiritual things, to reconcile to Himself. Jesus Christ made peace. Why was peace necessary? Well, because sin separated. There was division. God created all things for His glory. And yet, man had become enemies with his God. Man who was created for God's glory sought to deny that glory. Man began to take the creation of God and exalt it and make of it idols and gods. Romans chapter 1 explains how man suppressed the knowledge of God that was visible in all creation and made gods out of the very created objects. And God wasn't pleased with that. In fact, God destroyed these things. And Jesus Christ came. God manifest in the flesh. The God-man, Jesus Christ. And He took our sins, the sins of His people, upon Himself. And He nailed them to the cross. And by His death, He reconciled all things to Himself. And that includes you, believer in Jesus Christ. And you, who were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Jesus Christ, by his death, secured a work in you. Everyone who believes the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ has evidence this work is a work of God in you. Because it's this that enables you to believe and with belief comes responsibility. Oh, he calls on all men everywhere to repent. But who are those who hear that message and are convicted by the weight of their sin? Who are those who repent, who turn to Him, who are broken at the feet of Jesus? Those 
who he hath reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. Those whom he would present holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. This morning in the Bible study, we talked about what it is to build the house of God. To build upon the work of God. To be the work of God for his glory in a dark and sinful world. And that work is the work of God because it's His Holy Spirit that quickens, that gives life. It's His Holy Spirit that gives understanding, that provides the Word. But the warning was given, take heed how you build. Because if you build with the wrong elements, if you build hastily, if you build with works of wood, of hay, of stubble, the fire of God will try the work and it will burn it up to the salvation of your soul. But the work won't stand. And with that there will be much sorrow. But if you build lasting efforts, if you work in accordance with His will and His direction, if you work in the way He's commanded, there will be something lasting and there will be a great benefit and reward. What's the reward? Christ will be glorified. He'll be magnified in you. To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled. And be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard. If. If. What a blessing it is to have this knowledge. This knowledge of Jesus Christ in his gospel. What a blessing it is to know that he's reconciled you. He's reconciled me. In the body of his flesh, Jesus Christ did something real and lasting that wasn't for all the world. It was for me. It was for you. And that effect is very real. Because young or old, those who have been partakers of this grace, have experienced a transformation, a change of direction, a change of heart, a change of mind. You cannot do the things that you would, Paul says in the Galatian letter. No longer constrained by merely an external force or rule of law. No longer constrained by the expectations of society. But instead constrained by the Spirit of God convicting and directing and empowering. The New Covenant description given to Jeremiah was this. They will no more teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord. Why? Because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. The Word of God written in the heart. If you continue in the faith grounded and settled. Paul's prayer in another place is that we be not tossed about by every wind of doctrine and the craftiness of men. Peter warns Satan like a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour. But if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which is, was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, if you continue. 
Paul again takes an aside. I, Paul, am made a minister who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. One of the things Paul conveys by inspiration to the church at Colossae and to you and I today is the motivation of his building, the motivation of his service, what Paul lived for. And it was for the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ died for his church. Because he gave himself for you. And Paul says, I fill up the measure, I fill up the measure of the afflictions of Jesus Christ. I suffer in my flesh. And I do it gladly. I do it for his body's sake, which is the church. There's so much going on here in this text as we think about what he's saying. Now twice he's mentioned the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gave himself for his church. He gave himself for his bride. And Paul says, I suffer gladly for his body, which is the church. And these two two ideas are pervasive in Paul's writing. One, we are the body of Christ. Christ is the head, we're the body. He tells the Corinthian church this. We all are members together of the body of Christ. And the other one he talks about is the building of God, the house of God, the church. And Paul says... I rejoice in my sufferings for you. I fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. It's interesting how Paul phrases this call to the ministry, if you will. He says... I suffer for you. I do it gladly because I was made a minister. I was made your servant by a dispensation of God given to me. What is a dispensation? It's a gift. It's a direct gift. God gave this to me. For you. He gave to me to suffer. He gave to me to minister to you to fulfill the word of God. The work of God is revealed in His Word. And the work of God is playing out in history, in experience, in your life and mine. The Apostle Paul says, I was made a minister according to the dispensation of God given to me for you. The Apostle Paul was not about himself and his experience and what he was going to gain and what he was going to get. He wasn't even about the, the reputation or the reward or what people would say or think. 
In fact, Paul over and over in his writing says, I know that people mock me. I know that people, people speak ill of me. And he says, I don't measure myself according to man's measure. Why? Because I've been giving a dispensation of God to fulfill the word of God. Paul was commissioned of God not to serve himself, but to serve others. Remember when God called him there on the road to Damascus in his Message to King Agrippa in Acts 26. Paul describes for the fourth time how God struck him down on the road to Damascus, how God called him to his service. And as he speaks to Agrippa, he describes in great detail how Jesus Christ spoke to him and said, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Paul knew what his job was. He knew what he'd been called to do. And what a wonderful blessing it is to enter into the work God has given us with knowledge that God will do the work. God is successful. We're not sent out to preach the gospel to every nation, hoping and trusting and and wanting to find a way to make all men believe. No, we know that those who are called of God will receive the word. We know there's absolute success, so like Jesus Christ, the multitude can depart. And rather than be discouraged, we can rejoice because our sovereign God is victorious, no matter the appearance. And we know that word spoken by us, by God's grace, may redound to His glory as He turns the heart of the one who rejects it today that they might receive and believe it tomorrow. The work and the word of God, to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to His saints. The gospel is about knowledge, about declaration of what is true. And he says this is a mystery. It was kept secret for ages from generations. It was kept secret, but now it's revealed. And if we begin to look at the Word of God and try to understand how God communicates about Himself, the whole idea of covenants, God's covenants are God's revelation of Himself, of His will, of His purpose. There are some who would would say that the first covenant, the old covenant, the Old Testament, that was God's first attempt and it failed. And Jesus Christ was some kind of backup plan. What heresy. What an affront to the sovereignty of God. No, God revealed himself incrementally. He revealed himself in covenant with Adam and Eve. When they first sinned and he, he came and found them and he cast them forth from the garden. And he did it by covering them first with the the skins of a dead animal, pointing to the result of sin, which is death. And he spoke words to them of the seed of the woman. The serpent's head is going to be bruised. It's going to be crushed. Christ is going to come to Noah. God revealed His wrath and His judgment, bringing a flood upon all the earth. Yet Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God showed His electing love. God showed His mercy. God showed forth His salvation. In covenant with Abraham, 
God said, I've chosen you. Out of all the men on this planet, of all the nations of the earth, I am going to bless the earth in your seed. Abraham's seed not yet being born. Abraham being old, his wife being barren. Out of the barren woman, I'm going to bring forth a great seed. God reveals himself in covenant over and over and over until Jesus Christ comes. God himself. And the word is unveiled. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. When you think of the Old Testament, you think of what? You think of the law, right? God revealed himself in a series of laws. He gave a moral law. He gave a a ceremonial law. He gave types and shadows which spoke of something greater to come. And he gave an explanation of right and of wrong. And God revealed himself in this way to the Jews. But now to the Gentiles, he would make known the mystery. And the mystery is not a set of laws. It's not a set of ordinances. It's not a set of rules to follow. The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Where's your hope found? Is it found in your works? Is it found in your righteousness? Your ability to obey His commands? Certainly not. There's no hope there. There's only condemnation. Paul says the law was our schoolmaster, what? To lead us unto Christ. And the gospel reveals this mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Galatian church was confused. Why? They wanted righteousness. They wanted Christ's name to be magnified in them. And they thought if we can just be righteous people in a sinful world, then God will be pleased. And they established a set of rules. And they said everybody's got to live the same way. Everybody's got to do the same things. Everybody's got to dress alike. They've got to act alike. They've got to be circumcised alike. They've got to eat the same foods, wear the same clothes, do the same things. And then the world will see Jesus Christ in us. Paul writes and he says, Who is it that has deluded you? Who is it that has led you astray? Who is it that has brought this false gospel to you? I marvel that you are so soon removed to another gospel, which is not another. In the fifth chapter, he writes, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free. Liberty to sin? Absolutely not. Why? Because Christ in you works true righteousness so that you cannot do the things that you would. You're bound by the Spirit of God to walk after the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. It's not these sinful tendencies and practices. The fruit of the Spirit is righteousness. It's love, joy, it's peace, it's long-suffering, goodness, gentleness. And there's no law against these things. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What does this work of Christ in you do? 
It makes you long for glory. It makes you long for deliverance. It makes you long for something better than this world. So that your sojourning here is a testimony to His grace. And it's a testimony to the glory to come. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And the reality is that your knowledge of Christ in you is what makes you know that glory to come is real. Heaven is real. And there Jesus Christ awaits. Paul says, this is what I labor for. Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul, with a dispensation of God, with the knowledge given him by which he was commanded to write the majority of New Testament Scripture, with understanding that we can't begin to match. The Apostle Paul was not ready to sit and idly wait for the coming of the Lord. Quite the contrary. He says, I labored more abundantly than they all. He says... I preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Why? Because it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. That we may present every man perfect or complete. Who's he writing to? He's writing to a church of Jesus Christ for whom he prays that God would give them greater knowledge, greater understanding, that God would enlighten them, that God would give them more knowledge of Jesus Christ. That we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor. Serving Jesus Christ is work. We're called to work. We're called to do. That doing, it begins with knowing Him in His Word. It begins with committing to a lifetime of study. A lifetime of drawing near to Him in His Word. But that study results in application. It must have application. That knowledge as we gain it must be applied in our lives. The things that we say, the things that we do. What we do matters. Whereunto I also labor. Striving according to His working. So many times the Lord calls people in His Word to do works that are beyond them. You remember the story of Gideon? God came and said, Gideon, you're my man. You're going to go and you're going to defeat the Midianite armies. And what did Gideon say? I'm not qualified. I'm not the man for this. God says, I said you are. Are you going to argue with me? Well, no, I'm not going to argue, but 
just to make sure, can you prove to me that you're God? I'm going to put out a fleece. Make it wet and the ground dry. Okay, that worked. Put the same fleece out and make it dry and the ground wet. All right, it must be of God. Gideon goes out and gathers together an army, which is a dwarf army compared to those he's going to go up against. And then God says, nope, too many. Pare them down. Pare them down to nothing. Why? Because it's not Gideon's strength that's going to defeat the army. Well, brothers and sisters, it's not your strength that's going to enable you to glorify God in your life. It is the work of God. Striving according to His working. You know, so often we fail in attempting because we discount our ability and we say there's no hope, it can't be done. That's our default reaction and response. And according to human reasoning, that's always the case. Why would we go and proclaim the word to people who are unbelieving? They're just going to mock us. They're going to laugh at us. They're going to turn us aside. Why would we stand up to those who are evil and wicked? We know that their wicked works are, are there. We know the evidence before us. All they're going to do is turn on us. Why would we do such a thing? Why would Paul go and preach the gospel to Gentiles who are polytheistic, who have control and power and call on men to turn away from those deities to serve the true and living God and die with Him. Why would He do that? Whereunto I also labor striving according to the working, His working, which worketh in me mightily. As Jesus preached in John chapter 6, the people had been amazed by his miracles. They'd been amazed by his feeding of the 6,000. And Jesus upbraided them and said, You follow me not because of the words that I speak, nor because of the miracles that I do, nor because of who I am. You follow me because of the bread and the fish that you've eaten. And they say... What must we do to do the works of God? We want to do the works of God. Remember what Jesus said? He said, this is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. The work of God. Paul says, we labor, we strive according to his working, which worketh mightily. God's work, it's manifest in everyone who believes on Jesus Christ. It's manifest in everyone who gives up and rests from his own works and trusts in the work of God through Christ Jesus, whose work is finished, whose work is secure. And then we labor. We strive. Why? Because He's working in us for His glory, for His praise. And we begin to pare away that fleshly carnality. We begin to value Jesus Christ that in all things He might have the preeminence. We put Jesus Christ first. 
We labor together. And what does this do? This builds the church of Jesus Christ. It builds His witness. And God magnifies His name. You remember as Jesus prayed that night before His crucifixion. He prayed that the Father would strengthen, that the Father would enable, that the Father would glorify His name in His church. Jesus Christ prayed for us. In John chapter 12, the Lord calls out to God, glorify thy son. And the father responded, speaking from heaven, saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. God is interested in one thing, and that is his glory. And God's desire for his glory is the purpose for which the world was made, for which Christ died and lives again, and for which you live in him. The world is filled with people who profess that they're just looking for the purpose in life. The world is full of professing Christians who say, I'm just waiting for God to show me what I'm supposed to do to show me my purpose in life. God has revealed His purpose. His purpose is that Christ Jesus be lifted up, that He be magnified in us. Paul says, for this cause I preach the gospel. For this cause I labor. For this cause I strive. According to his working, which worketh mightily. He continues working today. Whatever is of value in your being, in your life. That's Christ in you, working Whatever you have built of gold, of silver, of precious stones, whatever is valuable in the kingdom of God that you've had a part of in, that's God working in you, through you. And the work of God is this, that you might believe on Him whom He hath sent. And that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So is there hope for the church of Jesus Christ? Yes, because God is building his church. Remember where we began. Jesus said, upon this rock will I build my church. What rock is that? The revelation of who Jesus Christ is, not by men, but by God himself. I will build my church. The church of Jesus Christ is still being built today. The church of Jesus Christ to whom Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, 
even until the end of the world. And then what? Then it's caught up to be with Christ. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus Christ lives. Jesus Christ reigns. And the God whose sovereign sway made and rules and will consummate this world is the God that you've been blessed to know, to trust, to glorify as you believe on his word. He's revealed his will to us. He's revealed his will in us. And that revelation changes everything. And it's that revelation that is the foundation of this church and of any church that professes the name of Jesus Christ according to the truth of his word. Thank you for your time, for your attention.